Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome to our podcast, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, where we talk beer and we talk Bills. I'm your host. I'm John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. Happy to be with you here today, ready to talk a lot about both the beer and the Bills. We're going to do it right here, podcast number eight. We invite you to go back and listen to any of the first seven. They all hold up pretty well. Got a couple of guests coming up on this podcast. We'll talk some NFL football, some Bills football with one of my all-time favorites, former Bills head coach Wade Phillips, the author of the book Son of Bum. We'll talk about his time in Buffalo, his time around the league, and a defensive uh, philosophy around the NFL with Wade Phillips coming up momentarily. We'll talk some beer with one of the foremost experts on beer and serving beer in the Cleveland, Ohio area, John Lane, Winking Lizard Tavern. That's where he runs. He's got 18 spots in Cleveland. We'll talk with John Lane about his uh, endeavors in that area. We will start with the Bills, though. The Bills now with five wins, two losses, after their 18-10 win over the Jets last Sunday, approaching midseason. I have to confess, a game away from midseason, I have no idea what to make of the 2020 Buffalo Bills. Who are they? Who are they? Are they the Bills who averaged 31 points per game in the first four games? Or the team that has averaged 17 points per game since then? Are they the team that averaged four touchdowns per game the first four games? Or the team has, that has scored four touchdowns over their last three games? Do they have a running game? Is Devin Singletary or Zach Moss the answer? Or... Do they uh, have Josh Allen? Do they need Josh Allen to keep providing a jolt to their rushing attack? Do they have a downfield passing attack? Well, they did early this season, but teams are taking it away now, forcing Josh Allen to take short passes like he did successfully against the Jets. And obviously a healthy John Brown is essential to their downfield passing attack. The defense, one that held the pitiful Jets to just four total yards in the second half last Sunday. How can these be the same guys that gave up 42 points to the Titans or 32 to the Rams? Are they better when they blitz the Buffalo defense like they did in the second half against the Jets? Or can they still play the coverage sound, tough run-stuffing style that they did the last few years to great success? What about their kicker, Tyler Bass? Is he an inconsistent rookie or is he a young player working to get better? Six made field goals against the Jets, some long ones. But is he worth risking what could be a great season uh, on on his shoulders? Are the Bills courting disaster when they may lean on him in crunch time? Is the injury bug over for the 2020 Buffalo Bills? Or for that matter, have they seen the worst of the corona outbreak? And can they continue to try to keep the lid on outbreaks the rest of the way? These are big questions. These are important questions. I'll be honest. I do not have the answer for them right now. I don't know. What I do know is that the Bills are 5-2, and two, approaching the midpoint of the season with a solid winning record. Now, they came up short against two of the best teams in the league, the Titans and the Chiefs. They were solid against some others, most notably the Rams. And they've got big tests coming up. Patriots, okay, 2-4 and four shouldn't be too much of a test. But then it's Seattle and Arizona back-to-back, Arizona on the road. Then the Niners and Pittsburgh loom large on the horizon. Buffalo really has to be three or at least two of those teams to truly be championship caliber. I'm not sure they are right now. Five and two puts them on schedule, I would think. They're a playoff team, maybe get a home playoff game, but will they contend for the championship? I don't think it's too soon to ask that question. Now, the window for a championship is small. you got to strike when you're ready. 
Ask the Atlanta Falcons how that goes. Bills have to get healthy. They have to stay away from more COVID issues. They have to play better on defense for an entire game. They have to figure out how to get a running game going. Most importantly, they have to have some luck to contend for a title. Just a brief word on officiating. The Bills flagged 11 times in the win over the Jets Sunday by referee Carl Cheffers, the same guy who called 10 penalties on Buffalo in their loss to the Titans. Bills now third in the league in penalties against, third in pre-snap penalties. Not good, but it's not critical. It's been statistically proven over the years there is no correlation between the number of penalties and a team's one-loss record. I do think the NFL is struggling with officiating, though, in an effort to be COVID-safe. Now, Cheffers worked with an entirely different crew Sunday in the Bills-Jets game than he did two weeks earlier in the Bills-Tennessee game. So the league assigns officials to games based on geography, a new officiating team almost every week. Because of COVID, because of uh, quarantine issues, obviously that does not lead to cohesion. I don't think it leads to well-officiated games either. Officials who may have never worked with one another before may have just met each other just meeting the weekend of the game. I don't think it's working. It was evident Sunday. There were some rough calls both ways in Sunday's Bills win over the Jets. All right, more on the Bills and their defense, NFL defense in general. When we talk with longtime NFL defensive coordinator Wade Phillips, the former head coach of the Bills, that's coming up on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, and on the line with us, an old favorite, Wade Phillips, former head coach of the Bills for three years, also head coach at Denver and the uh, uh, and a couple of other teams in the NFL, longtime defensive coordinator. Wade, uh, your name came up the other day when uh, Sean McDermott and the Bills beat the Jets. McDermott uh, is now fourth place all alone in terms of most wins by a Bills coach. You had that third place with 29 wins. Locked up for a long time, but there was a milestone, and, and twenty nine and nineteen is pretty good in three years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it took him four years to do it, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what so, I was thinking. Uh, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm proud of what we did there. So you know, I wish we would have won more, of course, uh, but that's that's anywhere you are. I think. Does it seem like that was a long time ago? For some of us, it seems like it was just the other day that you were here and, and going to the playoffs and, and winning a lot of games. How does it feel to you? And you've been to a number of places since then, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, we still uh, uh, we still have great friends. You're one of them in uh, Buffalo. And, uh, you know, my son, Wes, went to uh, Williamsville North High School. So we, we just have a lot of ties. Uh, still in Buffalo, so we uh, we still love Buffalo, really, and it's such a great experience. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but it passes quickly. That's yeah. for sure. I bumped into your son Wes when the Rams were here in Orchard Park a couple of weeks ago. He still he stayed with the Rams after you left in in January, right? Right. Yeah, he coaches tight ends, and uh, uh, yeah, the Buffalo Buffalo came back or almost let him come back and. Uh, uh, win but uh but uh, buffalo's playing good yeah that was an, an amazing game the bills blew a yeah. 25 point lead and then yeah. came back and won it, yeah. it was amazing yeah. i wonder I, I was thinking about you and, and uh you've been out now since january um and i'm sure that i don't want to pick a scab here but uh, the rams defensively let you go after last year did that come as a shock to you you were like middle of the pack defensively you weren't awful what did you think of that well we'd won 35 games and we just we just you know, we lost the Super Bowl 13 to three. So, uh, yeah, I was surprising a little bit. But you know, uh, that's the game. I mean, we won the Super Bowl at Denver, and, and uh, 
um, you know, a year later I was out of a job. So, <laughs> you know, it can happen. You come to expect that sort of thing or what do you think? Uh, I don't know that you expect it, but I, uh, you know, I think it's something I hadn't worried about since, since really I started coaching in the NFL when we, we lost the AFC championship two years in a row to Pittsburgh. They won the Super Bowl. Then we lost to Oakland in the playoffs. They won the Super Bowl and we got fired. So uh, then I, I knew then you just coach as good as you can coach and somebody else makes that decision. That's fine. You can, you give them everything you got while you're there, you know, and, and, uh, you know, they, they paid me for every day I was there and I worked hard every day I was there. So I, I don't have anything to look back on. I wonder, has it changed? You've been around the league so long. I wonder, has it changed, Wade? Are, are owners less patient with uh, their coaches, head coaches these days? What do you think? Uh, I think it's pretty much the same. I think certain places like Pittsburgh certainly are, you know, have a, way of keeping their coach all the, uh, for a long time or committed to keeping their coach for a long time. Um, most other places are a little bit impatient, I think, you know. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's it's about winning. I mean, if you win enough like Belichick, you know, uh, you know, you get to stay, to stay longer. But um, it's pretty much the same everywhere, you know. You you win if you win you they want you to win more and if you don't live up to expectations you get fired so but if you don't win you get fired so <laughs> two kinds of coaches ones that have been fired and ones that are going to be fired <laughs> yeah. your your departure from Buffalo long ago as it was uh, was a bit of a surprise you had success here as we said twenty nine wins and even uh, the third year did not make the playoffs but the Bills didn't fall off the table. Was there more to it as you look back than just wins and losses and leading to your departure from the Bills? No, well, I think it was expectations. We'd been in the playoffs two years in a row, and then we we uh, it looked like we were going to have a losing season because we were we were seven and eight going to Seattle, and I think everybody thought we were going to get beat, but we beat Seattle up there and had one of the greatest offensive games in yeah. in Bills history, if you remember that one. So. In fact, if we wouldn't have knelt on the ball at the end of the game, we would have. So, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I just think expectations were were, were high. And then, uh, you know, again, the owners, you know, they have their, uh, this their team. They can do what they want. So, he did. I, yeah, I remember that Seattle game, and, and it's a personal thing for me. But I was on the whatever the fourth or fifth bus, the the staff bus in the back where I usually sit. And you came back and sat with me for a few minutes. It was almost – and we just chatted. But it was almost as if you knew it was coming. You knew you were going to be let go soon. Did you feel that way after that? It was a – was it a Saturday night or maybe even a Friday night in Seattle? Yeah. In fact, I called Ralph and said, I, you know, I'm – I go to the East-West game every year, you know, in, in California. And uh, I'm hearing all these rumors. Should I, should I even go? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're still my coach. And then and – then, uh, I got a phone call as soon as I got in the East-West game, and that's when that's when he said, you're gone. So <laughs> I traveled all the way out there, Laurie and I, though, so we got to go to California. It wasn't bad. <laughs> that's pretty inconvenient. What yeah. Another thing about your, your three-year tenure in Buffalo that always struck me, um, so the Bills had a first-round pick, Eric Moltz, who uh, kind of stumbled around his first couple of years, didn't get much of a chance to play, and you decided – in training camp one year that you committed to Eric Moulds. So what did you see in Eric Moulds and how big a roll of the dice was that to, to take a guy who obviously a first round pick with a lot of talent, but had not produced into the kind of cast your lot with him to go with Eric Moulds that, that summer. 
Well, you know, I came, when I came in, I looked at looked at everything, and and Eric Moles actually on kickoff returns was one of the best in the, the few years he'd been there. One of the best that the Bills had ever had, and I thought this guy's got a lot of talent. I mean, he can run with the football. He can, he can obviously catch. Uh, so I wasn't sure what else was wrong, but but uh, I could tell he had talent. And, you know, I don't. I don't know if I can recognize all talent, but I, I, I certainly could recognize his. You know, and the NFL is built so that general managers and their staffs pick talent and, and scout talent. What role does a coach play in, as you say, recognizing talent or guiding a, a general manager to the type of player they might be able to work with? What kind of a role does, it, does a coach play in that? Yeah, it depends on uh, depends on the setup, but but working with John Butler was great. I mean, he he was he was outstanding. I thought he was a tremendous uh, talent evaluator, along with AJ Smith, who who picked up Flutie, uh, Flutie out of uh, out of Canada. So uh, I thought they both those. It wasn't you got the final say or I've got the final say. So um, you know, in some places the general manager has the final say. The other places the coach does. So. Uh, it really, it really, it was, we just worked together on that. Of all the places you worked, Wade, uh, as head coach or as coordinator, or even as a, a staff assistant, what was the best setup? What was the best division of, of, of duties, do you think, uh, GM and, and coach? Probably, you know, probably that one. I mean, uh, uh, I, when I was in Denver the first time, uh, uh, that was pretty close to the same setup. And, uh, uh you know, we traded for Zimmerman there. He was a, you know, and turned out really good for us. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I never was in a situation. Uh, you know, Jerry Jones was the general manager in, in uh, Dallas. But, he, you know, he, all, all you had to do is just tell him, you know, what you thought, and he evaluated your opinion. Sometimes he didn't agree, but most of the time he did. So, mm-hmm. uh, when I've been a head coach, it's been pretty similar. Other places I've been, you know, the general, some of the general managers were uh, had, had more, uh, you know, command, I guess you'd say. We're with Wade Phillips, uh, former Bills head coach, former NFL head coach and defensive coordinator. I want to ask you a little bit about defenses in the NFL these days, Wade. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been watching for years. It strikes me, um, for instance, when you came to Buffalo, uh, and joined Marv Levy's staff. You came in as a reputation as a guy who liked a 3-4 defense, and you set up a really good 3-4 defense. And you look around now, and every team is more versatile, right? Most teams play 3-4 and play four down linemen. They, they do a lot of different things. Is versatility kind of a, a newer, like, last 20 years development in NFL defense? What do you think? No, I think it's pretty similar. I mean, uh, you know, if you're a 3-4 team, you play 3-4 first and second down, you still play a four-man front on on third downs and passing downs. Uh, that really hadn't changed. Uh, four, three people still, you know, they're still on third downs. You're still playing a sub defense, whatever it is, four-two, uh, you know, five-one. It doesn't matter, but uh, they're playing different different sub defense, and that's been the same for a long time. Are teams switching among their uh, between their sub defenses? easier now than they did maybe 20, 25 years ago? Are they more flexible than they were? Well, some teams have more packages, what they call packages, where they play uh, different personnel, uh, you know. And and what's happening, too, the offenses have opened up to play more 
more wide receivers, like three wide receivers a lot on first and second down. So teams now are having to play their sub defense on first and second down or their, or their base defense. And, and, um, so, and I see people playing their sub defense against a, what I call a regular offense with just two backs and a tight end or two tight ends in the back. And I don't see how they stop the run doing that. Some of them don't, but, uh, you know, some of them commit more to the pass uh, when the offense is in a run situation and vice versa to me. Another thing, and I'd get, like to get your opinion on this, it seems to me there are they're like more hybrid-type players now than maybe ever before, at least in my memory in the NFL. In other words, um, players who don't fit the category, linebacker, defensive end, defensive lineman, guys, even safety sometimes uh, – you know, can move up and, and play in the box and, and be a, a linebacker. Uh, many times they're long guys, a little faster guys. Are, are there more hybrid types used in NFL defenses these days? Yeah, I think people are using them more. I, I mean, again, that's using what you know, what your player's ability, <clears throat> what their ability is, you know. So, um, yeah, I think uh, people – because yeah, you get guys that are smaller or, or guys that are bigger, and you got you got to. But that's always been the case. I mean, it's it's you know with, I mean Bruce Smith played the same position as Aaron Donald, and we didn't utilize him the same way. So, I, I you know I, I've always been in favor of that is, is what the player can do. Uh, try to utilize that. If you got safeties that can play in the box, then you play them more in the box. If they can't, you use them as a cover safety and try to use the other guys as box safety. Uh, you brought it up. Can you compare Bruce Smith and Aaron Donald? You've coached them both. Uh, <laughs> how do you compare them? I'm not going to ask you who's better, but how do you compare those two? Yeah, well, they were different. They act, um, Like I say, they played – in my 3-4, they played similar positions, except uh, we, we played Bruce outside a lot more. Of course, Aaron Donald's an inside guy, so right. that that's really the difference. I mean, Bruce was – so great at going upfield and around the corner and, and could get lower than anybody I've ever been around, especially for his height to, to get around the corner and, you know, um, obviously sack the quarterback. So, I mean, he was so tremendous at that, that uh, you had to utilize that with him. Uh, Aaron Donald is, is so powerful inside. We had to move him more and more inside on a lot of, or stun him inside, make sure he played, played against the guard a lot. And, uh, and was amazing there. But I've had, you know, I had Bruce Smith and J.J. Watt and some other great players too. Sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> one, one thing about the way you, you had a defense, your defense here in Buffalo and even other places you've been, it seems to me when you could, you always like to have like a big anchor in the middle of the defensive line, a guy who could occupy offensive linemen. Ted Washington was kind of a prototype for there in Buff here in Buffalo and in Denver. Um and the Bills kind of lack that right now. Um, can you talk about that? How is even in all with all these pass offenses and uh, the emphasis maybe on speed? How important is it to have an anchor in the middle of your defensive line like that? Yeah, it's just what the guy can play. I, you know, when I came from Denver, I had Greg Craig, and it was a really undersized uh, guy in the middle. We played great uh, defense there, and uh, we stunned him because that's what he could do really well. Uh, you know, I've had I've had different size guys uh, and had some really good defenses. So I, I, it's not. I think people have the concept that a fourth, a three, four, you have to have a giant nose guard, and you really don't. And my the teams I've been with, uh, it wasn't the case to be a really good defensive team. 
But the the general consensus I get from listening to the way you talk about it is maybe the best coaches kind of tailor their defenses to the type of players they have, right? You're, you're flexible enough to make changes. That's, that's, that's what I, I think that it's not the X's nose, you know, it's the players and uh, it's what they can do. What you try to, you try to utilize their best talent, what they can do best and let them do it. And then, uh, um, and the guys that uh, have, have flaws or aren't as, aren't as good as things don't don't make them do things that they can't do well you know so um that that's always been our philosophy and it's worked out pretty well um you know uh, i mean demarcus Ware. i mean when i had him i mean you want to run him rushing the pasture all the time you don't want him, you know you know so uh and bryce pop when we had him i mean you know he played a position that you dropped some but we didn't drop him a whole lot same with von miller played the same position you know, in, in my defense. So, um, it, it's what they can do, you know. It's not it's not what the scheme is. People are so scheme oriented that uh, they get they get they get caught in a box, you know, where this is they have to play this way. Well, that's each player that you get. In fact, I play the the second team guy sometimes plays different than the first team guy. It's, it's the technique that they play. You know, not the assignment, but the technique and if that makes sense. Yeah. So you, you what? When the second team guy's in there, you have a different. You're making a different. Yeah, he plays, he plays it a different way. In yeah. other words, Ted Washington, when he played the strong gap, strong a gap, we just told him play the middle of the center because he was so big, and you got that gap. Okay. Yeah. Now, Craig, Craig, and we stunted him to that gap. Um, I had uh, had the guy at uh, when it was San Diego with the Chargers. Uh, we offset him in the a gap because he was so. Uh, he could penetrate really good. So it, it's, it's the player, you know, and it's how you do it. Just like I said, with Bruce Smith, you know, our defensive end played wide and he stunned it inside. We let him stun or go upfield. Where Aaron Donald, we moved him down to a three technique because that's what he played the best. So it, it's simpler than I think what coaches want to make it. I mean, they, they want to, they want to have all of them, the cookie cutter, everybody, you know, everybody's these X's and O's. You've got to play it this way. Well, uh, it's different players. Yeah. Hey, wait, and all the time you've had to watch football this season, not working in the league, have you had a chance to watch much of the Buffalo Bills, and in particular the Bills' defense? I wonder if you have any thoughts on them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I just – actually, I just saw him against L.A. because uh, uh, my son was coaching. I, you know, I'm going to watch his games. But um, – I've seen them a little bit. I mean, I think they're they're well coached. They're, they're obviously winning. I like the quarterback, you know. Um, uh, so, uh, he, Sean's done a really good job with him. How much of the NFL do you watch these days, Wade? What's that? How much NFL football do you watch these days? Um, all of the games, I guess. You know, all of my all of them I can watch. You know, when uh, on direct TV, you can watch eight of them at a time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, are you uh, uh, you're 73 years old, right? Yeah. Are you yeah. thinking about coming back? Would you like to come back and coach again in the league? Yeah, I would. I, you know, I, I wanted to this year, but, uh, you know, I didn't get the opportunity. So, you know, I figure if I'm out next – I mean, if I don't get back in, I probably won't get back in. But I was out in 2014, and we came back. I got came back with Denver, and we ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. Right. So that was, uh, you know, hopefully. Hopefully I can come back and do the same thing. 
<laughs> what do you do with your, your spare time now besides watching football? Uh, you're living in the Houston area, I guess, right? Yeah, I live, we live in Houston. And uh, uh, not much these days. I mean, you know, just going out for a walk every morning is a big part of our day, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, because of all this COVID stuff and all that. So that's, um, you know, but we, we've gotten through it. Hey, Wade, thanks for this. I want to wish you well. You're, you remain one of my favorite uh, figures in Bill's history all the time I've been around. And it, it's good that you're healthy and doing well. And, and I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Hey, same here, John. Thanks. <laughs> you're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Welcome back to Sullivan's Pro Football Podcast. On the line with us, the man behind Winking Lizard, John Lane. John, thanks very much for joining us. We should let people know Winking Lizard is a very popular chain of, what, 18 uh, restaurants, bars in the Cleveland area, right? Yeah, we go we go from Cleveland to Akron to Canton to Columbus. So kind of northeast of how, you know, middle of the state as well. And you've been with Winking Lizard for 35 years or so? 33 years, yeah. Just 33, not 35, John, okay. but 33. <laughs> and you're the beer expert for Winking Lizard, right? I am. Uh, it's one of my duties. Yep. Um, been uh, all over the world. Been pretty blessed. How has business been in, in the wake of the uh, pandemic? How has business been for Winking Lizard at all 18 locations? Well, um, I mean, the downtown store is our least performing one. Um, there's just no one going downtown Cleveland. It's pro- probably the world over right now and people avoiding the cities. But uh, we're pretty blessed in our other markets, especially the suburbs. We've got, you know, just really, really loyal guests. So um, business isn't certainly where we want to be. It's not the normal. It's really affecting the bars probably the most um, because they've got to be sat. You can't, you got to be sitting. You can't have anyone behind it. So it's a little bit more you know, it's not as fun. Let's just go there. Let's just say that. Yeah. I read articles when the quarantine began, um, you, you, you're essentially shut down your restaurants, Winking Lizard for what, a couple of months. And you were, you were kind of emotional about uh, letting your a thousand or more employees know that, right? That really got to you. Well, um, the governor, he shut us down on March 15th at 3 PM. Well, he, he told us we had to shut down by nine o'clock that night. Um, so if you think about it, two days before um, St. Patrick's Day, uh, we were loaded for bear with beer. And, and um, so I, I, I actually got in my car and called my uh, two uh, partners. And on the way, we, we knew what we had to do the next day. And that was let go of all of our hourly teams. So we shut, we let all of our hourly uh, members, which we had about just close to 1,300 employees then. We let, we let go about 1,150 of them. We tried to run our, our operations just with our management teams uh, and just do carry-out business, but it was just our, our operations are big. They're just, we're not set up like, you know, for a drive-through carry-out, so it was just too much. So after two weeks, we just completely shut the restaurants down, and we had a grand total of four employees still on the payroll. Um, until uh, May 21st, when we were allowed to reopen. And then we, we gradually opened our locations, um, the downtown store being the last one. Uh, we have two downtown. We actually still have not opened one, so we should have 19 restaurants. But uh, it was hit by uh, the civil unrest. And um, there's just, and it's, it's, over by, um, uh, it's over by Progressive Field, and it, it's, it's over by um, Rocket 
mortgage field house and there's no sporting events, nothing going on down there. So it just doesn't make any sense to even reopen it. So yeah, it was very emotional because uh, my, our people are like family to us. Uh, we've been in business for 38 years and every year we have a, a party. Uh, it's, it's usually in April or May and we couldn't have it this year, but we have uh, out of out of those 1300, about 140 people that have been with us over 10 years. So it's it's one big happy family. That winking lizard over by Progressive Field, that's the one I have been to with my brothers several years ago on our way to an Indians game at Progressive Field. It, and it, I didn't realize at the time there were 17 others. It, it, it was a pretty impressive place. We had a great time there. Thanks. Yeah. We've been doing this a long time. We're, yeah. you know, we're pretty much known in the market um, and, you know, we love what we do. So. What, uh, so you've been around for 30 or more years. What do you think is the concept of Winking Lizard? What's, what's the goal? What, what's the mission statement, I guess? Well, w- um, I mean, our mission is t- uh, for our guests to come in and eat, relax and enjoy. Um, three pretty simple things. We, you know, it was best explained to me a long time ago um, when I, when I ran a rest, ran one of the restaurants and we had a guest that would come in and she, um, she was a single gal, but um, she had a a child, but she, she always said, you know, it's the kind of place where I can come in with a bunch of friends and we might have some beers and maybe an appetizer and we'll watch, you know, the game on, on the TV, or it's the kind of place where I bring my son in and we can sit down and relax and have dinner on the way, you know, before I'm going to take him to the movies. So we really do attract young, old um, families, um, singles, um, you know, white collar, blue collar. Um, we've always been a very value oriented uh, restaurant. So we have, you know, good deals on our food and our beverages. And, you know, everything is quality. So all our meats are, are fresh. Um, you know, our beer selection is, I would say, second to none. Um, and, you know, and we have great, just great, great people that work for us. And I, I think when you go out to a restaurant, I always feel like, you know, we just don't want to be a place where you're, you're just going there to fill your gut, you know, it's to go there and have experience and have a good time. You do pour Sullivan's right in most, if not all of your uh, 18 locations. Yeah, it's a really funny story. So when I, when I took the meeting uh, with those guys, um, you know, the local distributor sent me an email and says, Hey, I really want you to meet these guys from Sullivan's, you know, they're an Irish brand. And I'm like, Oh my Lord, you know, another you know, import in the world today where, you know, American craft is so dominant right now. Um, But I cut my roots on European beers. And, you know, I've been around before there were really was much American craft at all. And so I cut my teeth on um, European craft, I like to call it. And those are the original guys. Those are the, you know, the generational breweries, Duval, Samuel Smith, Eying. And so I took the meeting and, um, you know, I, I, I listened to the spiel and I said, okay, well, the proof's in the pudding. Let me try the beer. And I was blown away by it, by the quality. And we have a lot of, um, you know, we have a big, it's a, I, I like the state of, I like Cleveland because it's a melting pot of a lot of cultures. And we have a lot of Irish here. And the St. Pat- Patrick's Day Parade is absolutely huge. Um, not that everyone's not Irish on St. Patrick's Day, but, you know, we've got a big, and so it fit a, it fit a slot. 
And um, I did something I never do because I planned my draft list out a year out. Um, and um, I made a change right there and we, we put it on and it's, it's doing very, very well. How do you think Sullivan's, uh, for, your, for your customers, for your clientele, where does Sullivan's fit in? As you said, it's a, it's a craft beer, but you've got a number of craft beers. Where does Sullivan's fit into that? Well, it's, um, you know, I'm of the camp that, you know, and, and my wife reminds me of this all the time. You know, when, I, when we go out to dinner, you know, I just don't like going to a place and it has all IPAs. Sure, 60% of the, you know, 60, 65% of the craft market is IPA. But, you know, not everyone can drink an IPA. And my wife reminds me of that all the time. And so, you know, I try to have a big, broad um, draft selection so that someone comes in. And if they don't like hops, you know, they might want something maltier. And so Sullivan's has got that. Um, multi uh, multi forward flavor profile, but um, it's got a nice bitterness in the end and very dry. And um, that's a European thing. And we sometimes we get away from that too much. And, you know, the dryness wants you to, to have another one, you know, you, you have something too sweet or too multi and, you know, you might be only able to, your stomach might only be able to handle one, but, but it's a perfect balance. So, uh, my hat's off to them, House Sullivan's, because they're making, it's a really, really good beer. John, Winking Lizard's been around now, what, 30, 35 years or so. Um, and back then, the craft beer um, market was just getting started, right? When you, you guys got started. Yeah, I mean, at, at that time, I can still remember when I came on board, um, my partner had started the Lizard. And um, I, he and I are married to sisters, the original founding partner. We're married to sisters. So there's a connection. I was getting out of the Army. Um, I moved my wife seven times in six years. She basically said, I'm going back to home to Cleveland. What are you going to do? So I said, oh, I guess I'm going to go to Cleveland and find a job. And my partner was looking for someone to open the second restaurant. And the, and the, you know, we had it, we had this program called the world tour of beers and it's now called the lizard tour of beers. But at the time it was the world tour of beers. So we had like a smattering from all over the world, but everyone knows that, you know, the Germans went everywhere and everywhere they went, they had to have their beer. And so, you know, it was all lagers. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of differentiation. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but there's not a lot of differentiation from European pale lagers. But we did, we did have some imported beer from Merchant Duvin. And so, like I mentioned before, um, Samuel Smith, uh, the Samuel Smith brand. I mean, we've been carrying Samuel Smith for literally as almost as as old as uh, Merchant Duvin is, which I think they're celebrating, getting ready to celebrate a 40th anniversary. So, you know, that's where we kind of I cut my teeth on flavor flavor profiles um, because back then, I mean, you know, the world was made up of the I like to say the yellow fuzzy beers, um, and so yeah. And it just, it's just kind of evolved. And now, you know, the styles are all over the place. You know, Americans are making great beer, but I still hang my hat. I still try to go to Europe every year. It's the first year I can't. Thank you, pandemic. But I try to go to Belgium, you know, some of the older countries every year, still visit partner breweries over there. And um, maybe I can get over to Sullivan soon. You know, I'm new to the beer world, John. I don't know what to make of uh kind of newer craft beers you know people are making 
beer out of donut flavors and chocolate and fruits. What, what do you make of that? And how should we how should we think of that? Ah, some of it's a gimmick, but you know, to each his own, I guess. I, I always say buyer beware. Um, again, because I I cut my teeth on what I consider the world's best. Um, it's it's hard for me to get into the gimmicks. Um, I mean, look, I, if you would have told me seltzer water would be, you know, flavored seltzer water would be as big as it is now, I'd say you're crazy, but uh, what do I know, you know? So as a buyer, you know, I try to really, um, I, I gotta make sure there's a quality element. So it's okay if you're making a, a glazed donut beer, but it, it, it better, you know, taste good. There better not be any off flavors, you know, they, they better have some kind of quality control. So, I, you know, I think a lot of it is buyer beware out there. Um, and the craft brewery market just ramped up so quickly that uh, we miss out on some of that. So even today, I still trust um, the older, you know, some of the young like to call them the grandpa beers, which I, that's crazy. But, you know, I still trust the Sierra Nevadas and the Dogfish Head and, and the Stone Breweries of the world because I know they're going to make really quality beers. What can you tell us about the demographics of, of craft beer drinkers and how they compare to, you know, I'm sure they're older, you know, people who appreciate the, the big uh, brands, Budweiser, Coors. What, yeah. what are the differences in age and income, if there is one? What, what do you think? Well, I, I don't know that there is. I mean, look, um, I've got plenty of friends that are my age that, um, you know, if you asked them now, I mean, I just moved to my house five years ago um, and I'm, I live out a little bit, but I had neighbors uh, the first time they invited me over to their house. I brought a six pack of all different canned beers. And it's so funny. They're, they're, they're pounding their uh, yellow fizzy mass marketed beer, which that's fine. And they saw me and I'm drinking and they thought I was drinking soda pop. <laughs> um, and so um you know, they, they didn't say anything. And then like two weeks later, one came over in a golf cart and said, let me take you, I want to take you around the, the, the hood. And he said, I got beer in the cart. And I looked and he had, you know, the yellow fizzy. And I said, Hey, can I bring, I'm, I'm going to bring my own beer. So I got in the cart and I had some craft and he said, what are you drinking? And, and he started laughing and I go, why are you laughing? He goes, well, I thought that was soda pop. I go, no, it's beer. Now, if you ask this guy, I've only been in the neighborhood for five years, when the last time he's had yellow fizzy, he hasn't. I mean, I turned him on and he's, he's my age, you know, he's 60 years old. So I, I think it's just a, it's a learning curve. I don't think you can say it's just young. I mean, it's occasion based too. I mean, there, you know, uh, a lot of young people are drinking craft beer, but when they want to go to a sporting event, you're, you're watching them pound the, you know, the, the yellow fizzy stuff because, uh, you know, they got, they want to have something in their hand the whole time. So I don't think, I don't think we really should dial into demographic. I think, you know, it's one, I always say it's one drinker at a time, um, giving them a, give them an experience and look, there's plenty of people I've tried to turn on to craft beer and, they, they go back to what they like and, you know, it's the yellow fizzy. God bless them. As long as they're drinking beer, okay. Yeah. Hey, you mentioned, uh, just to wrap things up, you, you make trips to Europe, John, and, and I read where you were recently knighted by the Belgian Brewers Guild. You're an official knight. Talk about yes. that. Yes. Yeah, I was the first one in Ohio um, eight years ago. I was nominated by Duval Brewery. 
um, Duval Mortgott. And um, yeah, it was quite an honor. It's uh, if you ever get a chance to go over there during Brussels beer weekend, that's when it is. And then there was about uh, 25 of us total that got knighted when I was there. I was one of maybe six or seven Americans, uh, U.S. Americans. And uh, yeah, it's an honor. Uh, now there's a couple more guys in Ohio, which is great that have been uh, that are beer nights, but it's it's cool. Pretty cool. Congratulations. Hey, John, thanks for Thank this. You. We appreciate it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Well, that's it for this week's podcast, the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We're brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. All three ales available in bars and taverns throughout the U.S., always expanding. Sullivan's on tap in Buffalo and Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, all over upstate New York. Sullivan's on tap in New York City, Westchester, and Long Island. In northern New Jersey, Hoboken and Jersey City. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Columbus, Ohio, in Cleveland, in Georgia, Savannah and Atlanta, Georgia, many other places. Sullivan's Maltings Ale and Irish Gold Ale available in cans and stores all over those areas as well. I want to thank our guest uh, in this podcast, Wade Phillips, former head coach of the Bills, longtime NFL defensive coordinator. Also, John Lane of the Winking Lizard Taverns in the Cleveland area. He's got 18 stores. Make sure you go check them out and order up a Sullivan's Air. Uh, if you got feedback, make, make sure you check out my Twitter site, at MurphBills. We'll take your comments and questions there. You may have some feedback on what you've heard on the podcast, something you'd like to hear. I want to thank our producer also, Pat Feldball. Extra remedial work was needed with me this week from Pat. We thank him for that. We're back next week. Hope you join us for Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the beard.